We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. and welcome to today's episode of Your Parenting Mojo, which is on the topic of compassion. I actually need to thank Dr. Tara Callahan, whom I interviewed way back in episode four of the show on encouraging creativity and artistic ability for bringing us this episode. She met today's guest, Dr. Brendan Ozawa De Silva, at a conference and was kind enough to put us in touch. Dr. Ozawa De Silva is the Associate Director for the Emory University Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics, where he's responsible for Emory's Social, Emotional, and Ethical Learning Program, or C-Learning, a worldwide kindergarten through 12th grade educational curriculum based on compassion and secular ethics. He received his doctorates from Oxford and Emory Universities, as well as master's degrees from Boston and Oxford Universities. I think you've actually got more degrees than I do. (laughs) His chief interest lies in bringing secular ethics, which he calls the cultivation of basic human values, into education and society. I'm excited to learn more today about his work and the benefits that it has for children. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you, Jen. So can you start by telling us what are secular ethics? What do these have to do with social and emotional learning that parents might already be familiar with? So secular ethics means basic human values. So things like compassion, gratitude, a sense of common humanity, a recognition of our responsibility to one another and to the environment. And if we look at the two words, the word secular means that We approach these ethics not on the basis of any one religion or ideology, but in a broad way, on the basis of science, common sense, common experience. So what we have in common with each other rather than what kind of separates us, which religion and ideology can do. But it doesn't mean secular in the sense of anti-religious. So secular ethics doesn't mean anything against religion, but it's rather what we all have in common, despite our religious, national, cultural differences. And then when we talk about ethics, it's important to state that we're not talking about ethics as a set of rules or principles that are being handed down by an authority, that this is right and that is wrong, this is good and that is bad, but really exploring the dimension of what contributes to individual and social flourishing. So what's beneficial for us? What are the kind of common values that we would share that will be beneficial to us? So we agree on those values politically and and legally, for example. We have laws saying, you know, you can't steal and you can't murder people. And those reflect our common values, independent of religion. So that's what we're approaching it. And the connection to SEL is that we believe that the cultivation of these basic human values is very linked to social and emotional intelligence and social emotional skills. So these so moral emotions are actually social emotions, just emotions that involve how we relate to one another. 
So it's a kind of different approach to ethics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as you're listing off those components, compassion, gratitude, responsibility, individual and social flourishing, I'm going down that list thinking, yep, I want that. I want that. I want that for my daughter. So that gives us a framework to think within. And to me, that sounds, yes, I want to know more about that. So can you tell us why this kind of learning is important for children? And specifically, I'm interested in, it seems as though not all of these concepts are a component of the existing SEL programs. And by SEL, we mean social and emotional learning programs uh, as they're typically taught in schools. Yeah, well, I'd like to just very briefly give a story of myself when Mm. I was a child and I was growing up because it's kind of a funny story and it kind of explains why I'm doing this. I remember when I was probably 10 or 11, maybe I first had these thoughts even earlier. I was kind of thinking, and I know children think about this even at a much younger age. I was thinking, you know, about what's important in life and what am I doing here? And, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? What's going to happen when I grow up? And I was asking these questions and wondering when in school we would actually be learning about these things. (laughs) So I thought, you know, well, they're going to teach us, you know, the adults are going to teach us about the meaning of relationships and love and Mm meaning in life and what life is about and all these things. <laughs> and I thought, you know, well, they're not, you know, we're too young right now. So they're going to teach us later. So maybe when we get to middle school, they're going to teach us these things. And I uh, got to middle school and I said, no, you know, they're not teaching us that. And then I thought, well, maybe in high school, they'll be teaching us those <laughs> things. And no, it's the same thing, math, history, biology, you know. And by then I was old enough to realize, even looking at college, that we would never be taught these things. Mm. So not only are we not taught them, but there's no space in the school day to even talk about them or discuss them. So, but I think that as human beings, we all have a need to find meaning in life. As you said, as parents, we always want the best for our children. We want our children to have happy lives. And we know that there's a connection between character and flourishing, being a good person, however we define that. We know there's a relationship between that and leading a happy life. So why don't we make space for that in education? And maybe in previous times, that's a space that would have been held by the family or extended family, the community, churches. But what we're seeing in today's pluralistic society is that increasingly these things aren't talked about. And so kids don't have a space to talk about them. And since all children go through school in some form or another, why not? allow school to be the place where we do that. Social and emotional learning is a step in that direction because it creates a space in in the curriculum and in the school day for kids to talk about emotions, talk about relationships. But SEL has stayed away from the kind of more thorny question of values and of things like compassion and things like meaning because, you know, that's moving in the direction of ethics. And to some people that starts sounding like religion, mm-hmm. but we think and that there's a way too. to talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we have a, a history of people trying to indoctrinate our kids in various ways. And of course we should be very suspicious of that, but we believe that there's a way of doing it, which is not about indoctrination at all, but about exploration. So our program is very much not about teaching children how to think or what to think, but creating a space where they can explore these questions for themselves and talk about their own anxieties, their fears, their hopes, and these deeper questions of meaning so that they can kind of get a jump start on those things. And also we think it, it might be even protective against some of the problems that we're seeing in uh, among kids and in schools with regard to anxiety, bullying, and just a host of uh, various issues that we're dealing with. Okay. 
Your anecdote reminded me of my own moment where I thought the grown-ups had it all figured out. I was in geography class when I learned about climate change, and it was just before the 1992 Rio Climate Conference. And my teacher told us about the conference, and I thought, oh, okay, well, the adults are going to go and figure out what to do about this, and they're going to come back and tell us, and we're going to do it, and climate change will be solved. <laughs> and uh, I, I believe that's probably not what happened at the Rio conference, so we wouldn't still have climate change today. But yeah, so when that leads us to the broader issue of the fact that the grown-ups don't always have all the answers, and <laughs> that can be uncomfortable, I think, for teachers and also for parents. And so what would you say to parents who are thinking, oh, I do not want to open this can of worms with my kid because I don't know what to say. I don't know what the answer is. I think I think that's a great point. I think there's a moment in every child's life probably mm -hmm. when they have that <laughs> aha moment. They realize that the world is a lot crazier than it should be. And that means that the, the grownups have not figured all things out. I remember going to school in the 70s and 80s and being taught stop, drop, and roll. Mm -hmm. You know, what happens if a nuclear bomb falls on mm -hmm. you? Uh, learning things like mad, mutually assured destruction. So mm. if the Russians fire warheads at us in the States, then that's no problem because we'll fire warheads back at them and everyone will die. So yeah, you learn these, you hear these horrifying things as a kid and you realize, yeah, the adults don't have all the answers, but there's no place in school to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of kids, sometimes there isn't even a place at home. So I think it is very important for parents to make that space and be courageous enough. It also takes courage from our teachers also to walk into this space where they know they don't have all the answers. You know, we haven't figured out our own emotions, our own relationships, certainly. Mm -hmm. But just creating that space is so important and to allow children to explore that. Children have an incredible amount of wisdom on their own, and it never ceases to amaze us that when that space is created, the things that they come up with and the learning that takes place just through the conversations. And we also find that parents learn a lot. So uh, a lot of children who go through our program will bump into the parents in, in the drugstore or at a yoga studio, if it's a school here in Atlanta, for example, and they'll say, you know, my kid was teaching me this about stress and teaching me this about what I can do when I get upset and, and you know, seeing me stress out and saying, you know, mommy, you can take a few deep breaths now or uh -huh. you can push against the wall. You know, we teach them all these various techniques and those, they get deeper and deeper and deeper. And so the parents, you know, that's the funny thing is that the parents can also learn. So if parents are open to it, it's a great opportunity for growth for themselves, their kids, and their relationship with their kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, your curriculum addresses kindergarten through age 12, but I think it's important to note that this isn't something you have to wait until school age to start. Actually, in an astounding moment of <laughs> coincidence, I was just browsing Facebook before we got on this call, and a friend of mine posted a discussion he'd had with his son, who's four, and his son, they were just eating lunch, and his son said, what's the best thing to do, Papa? And he said, mm, I think the best thing is to keep asking questions. And his son said, oh, why? And he said, because if you keep asking questions, you understand more, and with understanding, you become more compassionate. And his son said, what's compassionate? And he, he said, what do you think it is? And his son said, well, compassionate is when you hear more laughs and more crying. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, yeah, that's right. When you hear more laughs and more crying, you'll understand yourself and the people around you better. And with that, more love goes around. And I just thought, wow, this kid is four years old and he's already having conversations like that with his father. So shout out to my friend, you know who you are. I'm not going to out you on the show. But yeah, so yes, we're talking about a curriculum that's used in school, but this is also relevant to kids younger than this, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It's a 
grades K through 12 program, but children first learn about compassion from their home environment and from their parents. And they first learn the sense of how to get along with others and how to interact with others in, in the home environment. So absolutely, uh, one can and should start much earlier. And that little anecdote that you shared is exactly our approach. I mean, we want kids asking these questions. We see kids as little scientists. Kids are little scientists, mm -hmm. you know, trying to figure out the world. And we can teach them one way and say this is the right way, but they're going to learn pretty quickly that what we have taught them as the right way is only partially true and partially helpful. Mm. And ultimately, they're going to have to find things out for themselves. So that attitude of questioning and exploring is very central to what we're doing. And it's interesting because some teachers have, um, we've run several workshops over the past several years. We're still in the pilot phase, the preliminary phase of our development. But we have about 460 counselors and teachers working with us uh, who we've done trainings for around the world and are giving us feedback. And some of the feedback that they're saying is, oh, this is very different because we're used to teaching kids, you know, this is right, this is wrong about math, about history, social <laughs> studies, science, you know, and this is more exploratory and less definite and there are no right and wrong answers. But the thing is, actually, we should be teaching these other subjects in the same way also. A lot of the things that we teach in our history books and in our physics classes are wrong or outdated. And they're not actually, you know, <laughs> yep. physics is actually a lot more complicated than your high school physics textbook. History yes. is a lot more complicated than the way uh, yes. we teach it. So that spirit of questioning, yeah. I recently learned electrons do not orbit protons in shells. <laughs> and that's what all the textbooks tell us. So you, you may think, how could the textbooks be wrong? You're absolutely right. They're wrong. <laughs> Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I'm reading a fascinating book on physics called Reality is Not What It Seems. It's written for <laughs> lay people by Carlo Rovelli. He's an Italian physicist. It's a beautiful book. And if you read this book and your whole sense of reality is not shaken, then you, know, you weren't paying attention. We'll put that in the references list. <laughs> yeah, no, but it basically says that, you know, yeah, not all our kind of all the things we were taught in school, most mm -hmm. of them are, are completely wrong. Yeah. Our understanding of the universe. And it's actually, I'm reading it for our program because we want to teach children to question. And we also want to teach children about systems. Now, preschool children, this might be on a very preliminary uh, level, but one aspect of our program is actually systems thinking. And that's thinking in a scientific way about complexity. Hmm. Okay. So <laughs> I want to get into the weeds a bit here because I want to help parents understand what are some of the elements of this program that they can use to help their children with and where are they going with this? So if asking questions is one and not just the parent asking questions, but hearing the child's questions and supporting that process, if that's one area, what are some other types of topics that uh, parents can do to help develop the sense of compassion in their children? So one thing I want to say is that all our materials are free and available. So this is a worldwide program. And uh, if people go to our website, they can download the framework. And pretty soon, they'll be able to download all of our learning experiences, what we call learning experiences also. And uh, they can adapt them for their own use. So mm -hmm. that's one thing I want to mention. Okay. And if people do kind of go and look, they should be able to find a lot of, you know, practical resources and helpful resources. But I think that one of the important things is we begin the whole program with a discussion of what is kindness 
compassion is the term we use with older children. When we're talking about very young children, we just use the word kindness. And what is kindness and how is it related to happiness? So we believe that as human beings, we all seek safety and happiness and what's good for ourselves and for those we love. And we don't want pain and suffering and heartache and, you know, bad relationships and all these kinds of things. And this is a basic orientation of life. This is something that we share even with non-human life, with animals, for example. You know, in the winter, they seek warmth and food and safety. And in the summer, they want to play around in the sun. And, you know, I mean, that's natural if you're a living being. But we are, as human beings, we're also social animals. So we need each other to be happy and to be safe. So in just discussing kind of these very basic things about what is happiness, what contributes to our happiness, what contributes to others' happiness. So other people's kindness contributes to my happiness and is actually essential to it. Mm. So it's only natural that I should extend kindness to others also. You know, so we introduced that concept as reciprocity. And we introduce that from a, a very early age. And kids get this from a very early age that, you know, why should you help others? Because you're going to need their help, you know, and a world in which we help each other is a lot better than a world in which nobody helps anyone else. So kids get that very early on. And we make agreements in the classroom. And there's no reason why parents couldn't make agreements also with their children that are similar, that are rooted in these ideas of kindness. What do we want for ourselves and therefore what would we want for others? Because we share this space, whether it's a home or whether it's a classroom. Okay. So when you say reciprocity, as an adult, I understand what that means. And it's not necessarily a tit for tat kind of thing, but I'm just yeah. wondering, it, does a child see it as a, well, I helped you earlier. And so you got to help me now. How do you get beyond that? <laughs> is that an issue? It is. Yes. Well, I think that a lot of these are developmental issues. So Children go through a stage, uh, my friends who are developmental psychologists, I'm not a developmental psychologist, but my friends in psychology who study development say that, you know, there are just phases that kids go through where they're self-maximizing. Mm -hmm. And so sharing is not really topmost <laughs> among their priorities. And they do really interesting studies where they film kids, you know, when the kids don't think anyone's watching and, you know, <laughs> they're supposed to be <laughs> distributing candy in a fair way. And, you know, there's a certain age where the kids are much more likely to, you know, take a few more for themselves mm -hmm. than distribute it evenly. There's really nothing wrong with that. I mean, we go through developmental stages when we hit adolescence, teenage years. These are just natural stages. If a parent understands this within the context of development, I think it's going to be a lot easier for them because the question is not to undo that developmental trajectory, but just keep you know reinforcing these ideas as the children go along. And they will get them. Mm -hmm. They will get them. And their understanding and their sophistication of it will go deeper and deeper and deeper. So in the beginning, it might seem like it's a tit for tat kind of thing, but eventually it can be expanded that this person might not help me immediately, but they might help me later. And eventually it gets expanded even beyond that, which is that this person who I'm helping might never help me, but someone else might help me later. Or this person might never help me, but somebody else helped me in the past mm -hmm. and that's enough. Mm -hmm. You know, So this idea of paying it forward even across generations, you know, I mean, as kids grow older, recognizing the way their parents have helped them in infinite ways, and then recognizing that that means they have a responsibility to future generations. If we 
encourage that way of thinking, it can become very vast. And, you know, one of our assumptions in creating this program is that our society needs much more of this. You know, we have a very independent, short-sighted view of well-being. So we think that people on the other side of the earth have nothing to do with our well-being. Why should we help them? They could never help us. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. And it's actually that kind of narrow, self-centered thinking, narrow self-interest that we think is really at the root of a lot of the problems we see in society. Mm -hmm. So if we do think that, then, you know, we need to teach our children and encourage them to think in a more farsighted way, in a more expensive way. And they're fully capable of doing that if they're given the opportunity. Okay. And so when parents go to your website and you gave me the site, compassion.emory.edu, is that the right site where they can go to download those resources? That's right. Okay. And so what are they getting? Is it a series of conversation openers? What kind of resources do you have there? So right now, at the present moment, we're still in development. So what we have is we have our framework, okay. which is a document that kind of outlines all the various things we're trying to teach in our program, how we teach it, why we teach it, um, some of the evidence uh, based in research for why we're approaching it in this way. In the fall, go up on there is the actual curricula, which are a series of lessons that teachers can do. Some of those parents can also use. But really, since we're still in development, the full suite of resources is only going to be available when we launch the program publicly, which will be in March of 2019. Mm -hmm. okay. So there's not going to be that much there for parents right now, unfortunately. Okay. But, you know, we're developing that. And we're also developing a series of online modules, which will have videos and other kinds of training resources that people will be able to use. But again, this is all being prepared for a public launch in March of 2019. We didn't want to launch the program until we had tested it out in multiple schools and classrooms in different places and in different countries. Mm -hmm. Okay. So nerdy me wants to know some more about that testing. So mm -hmm. I've read a decent amount of studies on social and emotional learning programs, and some of them actually probably a lot of them, don't end up having results that are statistically significantly different from a program that's administered to a control group where they just sort of sit together and talk about something unrelated to social and emotional learning for an hour. And I'm wondering, does that matter? Or should we look to Carol Dweck's comment when she's the originator of the research on mindset, on growth mindset, and when she heard that a study showed that it didn't make a significant difference in academic outcomes, she said, well, they just didn't implement it right. <laughs> so mm -hmm. how do you go about testing these things to make sure they're effective? Yeah, that's a great question. The quality of implementation is very, very important. And Research on social-emotional learning is still quite preliminary. So social-emotional learning has been around for about 30 years, but the research is still in a preliminary stage because schools are very difficult places to do research. Mm. So, you know, if you ask any psychologist, they'll say, you know, I mean, the best place to do research is in your lab where everything's controlled. And, you know, <laughs> of course, it's completely artificial, mm -hmm. but that's the good thing about it. Once you go out into the real world, things are messy and schools are just about the messiest places you can go. <laughs> so, you know, I've done a few studies in schools and it's, um, I always vow never to do one again, but um, <laughs> here we are. Back. <laughs> yes. So I would say that the research is helpful, but I would say that the fact that the research isn't showing statistically significant benefits, we can't really evaluate that one way or the other. Mm. We can't say that the programs are not good because of that, because we need to know how they're being implemented. And, you know, sometimes a principal or an entire district will say, or an entire state 
will say, we're going to do social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. And suddenly thousands of teachers are just handed packets and have to do this. And we shouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised that that's not a terribly effective way, especially if they're not trained, they're not interested in it. The kids sometimes see this as a distraction Mm -hmm. from more important work and studies. I think that the thing that is undeniable is that you know, we need to educate our children in social and emotional competencies. And there's a cost for not doing that. So and we see this in many, many different ways. Employers, I mean, this is much later in the developmental spectrum, but employers are increasingly saying we want to hire some people coming out of college or out of high school who know how to get along with one another, mm-hmm. who have the ability to cooperate, who have the ability to manage their emotions, who are responsible, who have a sense of integrity, who aren't just looking out for themselves. And this doesn't just happen magically. You know, uh, if we're not focusing on this issue at all in education, why would we expect our kids to have all those things? Mm-hmm. And I also mentioned the issue of anxiety. If we look at anxiety, depression, suicide, we're really facing an epidemic among young people. I was at a conference recently. Someone was showing statistics on suicide among adolescent and teenage girls. And the rate has tripled in just 12 years. Whoa. And I have many friends who are children of, uh, of colleagues of mine. So their parents are professors and kids who are very, very bright, who are dropping out of high school, not going to college, not able to deal with the stress of the school environment. So I think that parents of younger children need to be thinking ahead that this is an environment their children might be going through, particularly if they're going to public schools and particularly city public schools, Mm -hmm. that we are in a crisis mode and we have to, it's our responsibility to provide whatever methods we can to children to navigate that space. And that means navigating their emotions, navigating their relationships, and on a deeper level, navigating their sense of meaning in life, you know, their attitudes. How important is it to be the best at everything? How important is it to be number one? You know, is it realistic to have this kind of attitude that I need to be a superman, a superwoman, and excel in all these different ways? You know, so if we're not addressing those issues, I think we're really failing young people. Mm-hmm. And if the programs are not good enough and are not being implemented well enough, then that just means we need to do better. Mm -hmm. And that's the motivation behind our program at Emory too, is that we're looking at all the SEL programs out there and there are now hundreds and hundreds of programs in the US, different SEL programs. Mm -hmm. And we're saying we need to take a step forward. And one of the ways we're trying to do that is by going deeper and also going a bit broader. So we have added certain elements that we think are missing in existing SEL programs, and we are addressing those issues of implementation as well as we can also. Okay. So I want to push a little deeper on that and challenge you just a little bit. I've read that some of these interventions, which is what they're typically called, (laughs) these Mm -hmm. short-term programs, could potentially be replaced by drum roll, more unstructured outdoor (laughs) playtime. And that the outdoors part is important because parents exert so much control over the home and what happens in it. And teachers exert control over the classroom and what happens in it. But the outdoors is sort of this nebulous, not really controlled space. And that, you know, the unstructured part of that means we're not taking the kid out and saying, okay, we're going to go and find snails and draw them, but we're just going outside and seeing what happens. And it gives the children an opportunity 
to develop games and develop their own rules and see what works for them. And, oh, that person looks really upset. They don't want to play and the game doesn't work without them. And what do we need to do to fix that? And all those kinds of skills that develop when they have to encounter these problems and solve them for themselves. What do you think about that? I think there's a lot to be said for that. I don't see it as an either or thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Probably we need both. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to a woman who started a school uh, it's the Sudbury model, oh, I yes. think. <laughs> we are familiar. <laughs> yeah. I think our discussion led to the question of scale. So the smaller scale the situation is, I think the more unstructured it can be. Mm -hmm. Because you have parents or teachers who can kind of just provide enough guidance to resolve a conflict and to kind of bring about the learning. Mm -hmm. And the kids can learn on their own. And I think that's very, very valuable. When we get to, say, school environments where you have thousands of kids in a school, this becomes much more difficult to do. Yeah. So I've seen this. Um, I think this can work on a small scale. Mm -hmm. But one of the things about education is that there's so much variety across the U.S. As you know, our schools are so different and they have different resources. They have different types of students, different types of teachers, different facilities. And then when you go internationally, things become even more varied. So we don't see our program as the answer, but we see it as a resource that's there. But there are much, much larger structural issues that need to be addressed. And, and that what you just said is pointing to one of them, which mm -hmm. is that our approach seems to be like trying to cram more into the school mm -hmm. day. And we're not seeing better learning outcomes, I think, as a result of that. So it's almost like we need to take a step back and really rethink just what are we doing in the first place. Okay. So one of the articles that you had sent me for pre-reading said, and I'm going to quote, young children may have an innate ability to tune into their body's signals. As they grow older, they get messages from the outer world to turn off their natural sensitivity. And I thought, ooh, did I, did I miss the window? <laughs> did I already do something <laughs> to turn this thing off? What kinds of messages are these that we're sending to our children? And what more productive messages should we send or tell them instead? So that's a great question. We take a multi-tiered approach to the cultivation of resilience and emotional intelligence in children. And we start with the body and the nervous system and sensations. So, and we actually draw a lot of this work from research that's happened in trauma care, because one of the interesting things about trauma is it disrupts our connection with our body and with sensations because the nervous system has experienced a threat to survival and then kind of recalibrates itself accordingly. And we have to kind of ease it back. But what's interesting is that this is true, not just for people who have suffered from trauma, but it's true of really anybody who has a body and has a nervous system, because we're always experiencing threats. Threats for us are not just physical threats, but also social threats, meaning just, you know, not meeting someone's expectation or mm -hmm. threats of social rejection or judgment. So uh, we all have experienced these things. And the interesting thing about the older parts of a nervous system and things like the autonomic nervous system is that it exists on the level of sensations. And if we start to pay attention to our sensations, they actually tell us our inner sensations inside our body. They tell us the state of our autonomic nervous system, which is really interesting. So if we look at our breathing, if we look at our heart rate, if we look at tension in the body, any sensations that we notice inside the body, we can categorize them as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
And unpleasant sensations are sending danger signals to our autonomic nervous system and saying, hey, uh, you know, things might not be okay. But pleasant sensations and neutral sensations, if we focus on them, they actually create a sense of safety. And so in teaching very basic skills about how to pay attention to our body and develop body awareness, body literacy, we're actually learning about the way our nervous system as a whole is kind of navigating the world. And that can be really, really helpful. Kids are very, very sensitive to sensations. And, you know, parents definitely know this, Mm -hmm. you know, little babies cry when they have, you know, sensations that they don't like, or their body's rubbing up against something that they don't like, or they're uncomfortable in their bodies. But over time, we kind of tune in less and less to our body. Mm -hmm. And we learn to ignore those sensations. And they're actually giving us a lot of information. So we believe that if we first start paying attention to the sensations in our body, they tell us a lot about whether we're sensing safety or danger or what's going on. We can then regulate our nervous system better. And then that serves as a great foundation for then developing emotional awareness. Because when our body is dysregulated, it's much more easy for our mind to become dysregulated. Mm -hmm. And then as we develop more emotional awareness, that helps us with social awareness, how we're interacting with others. We gain insight to our own emotions. That gives us insight into other people's emotions. That helps us cultivate more empathy for them because we understand what's happening inside them emotionally instead of just treating them like they're crazy. And so it builds up from there. Yeah, my mind is going absolutely crazy making connections with previous episodes we've done. (laughs) So we did an episode on risky play lately. And the research on that, I learned that children actively seek out that edge between the pleasant and the unpleasant sensation, the, the excitement and the fear. And they're very adept at finding it and walking along that edge. And sometimes they fall <laughs> and sometimes mm-hmm. they don't. And our job is to support them in exploring that edge rather than saying, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> so sure. that was one example of a physical thing. And then we did another episode on modeling emotional regulation and how parents sort of feel as though they can't let their child see them angry. You know, I don't want to smack my child, so therefore I'm just going to say that I'm not angry, even though I am. And what that must lead the child to do is, you know, they obviously see you're angry. (laughs) My precious vase got broken or whatever. My Mm. daughter can see that I'm furious and I'm sitting there with clenched teeth saying, I'm not angry. (laughs) And my daughter, I imagine from what you're saying, what she learns is, I can't trust my gut. I can't trust what I see in my mom's face. And therefore, she must be right because she's my mom. She's saying she's not angry. My gut must be wrong. And so I must not trust it on this. And are there other elements where I can't trust it as well? Does that kind of process sort of ring true for you? Yeah, yeah. I think those are great kind of teachable moments. Because if the parent in that moment, and this is not easy, Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying pretending it is easy. But if the parent, say, has practiced, you know, to some extent, self-regulations, you know, awareness themselves, awareness of their own emotions and their own bodies themselves, then, you know, the parent might have the option of saying to the child, well, I am angry. Mm -hmm. I am upset right now, but this is how I'm going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it by hitting you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to deal with it in this way. I'm going to do this thing that helps me calm down. And then we'll talk about it. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Because then the parent is teaching that you can have emotions, Mm -hmm. you can notice them, honor them, express them, but then also deal with them in a constructive way Mm -hmm. rather than a a destructive way. 
and that's a very important lesson for children to learn because the ability to deal with difficult emotions in some cases inhibit the behavioral response that that emotion is provoking, like mm-hmm. lashing out. Mm-hmm. That is really, really important. And that um, there's this famous marshmallow study, which you might have <laughs> talked about in, uh-huh. in some of your earlier <laughs> episodes, showing that that ability to you know hold back from a, an impulse is correlated with all sorts of positive benefits later in life. And it only makes sense. Mm-hmm. It only makes sense. Because if every time you get angry, you shout at somebody or hit somebody, you know, yeah. you're not going to last long in a workplace or, or in a relationship or anywhere. Yeah. So Just um, as a, a reminder to listeners, that study is uh, researchers put kids in a room with a marshmallow and said, if you don't eat this marshmallow, you can have three marshmallows when I come back in five minutes. And how many kids were able to resist that temptation for five minutes was really predictive of their executive function skills and whether they were able to control their emotions, even though in a lab, it's not very realistic situation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, there's so much face validity to this. You know, we know that young children who can't inhibit their emotions in any way whatsoever and are just running around, you know, kind of just lashing out Mm -hmm. whenever they feel like it are going to struggle later in life that you have, you have to learn that one way or another. Yeah. But um, we talk about, and just in terms of the parent getting to the point where they can do that, we use an analogy with kids that we call it the spark in the forest fire. And we say, you know, Mm. when a forest fire is raging, even several fire departments can't put it out and it just, burns itself out and it's very it can be very destructive it's just out of control but when that forest fire is just a spark then even a child can put it out and there are many ways of putting it out and our emotions are like that so the key is not suppressing the emotion but recognizing it early and then having the freedom to do what we want with it mm-hmm. if we only recognize that anger when it's you know full blown and of course this happens very fast so if you know your child just broke your exquisite vase <laughs> this is going to happen really fast mm-hmm. but if you train in doing it then even those fast moments they almost appear to slow down mm-hmm. and this space opens up and so this is one of the things that we teach the children is that they can learn to watch their emotions, to watch their minds, watch their bodies and catch the spark before it becomes a forest fire. And if parents learn how to do that better, then they can teach that to their mm-hmm. children also yeah, and model it. modeling it, it yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about who owns emotions. My daughter has got, I don't know if she's fond of saying it, but she likes saying a lot. She'll say, you made me very frustrated or you made me very angry. And part of me is so proud of her for <laughs> recognizing that and being able to say it to me. And part of me wants her to understand that those are her emotions and things that she controls. And yes, I might've done something that makes her frustrated, but the frustration is her response. Is there something I can do to help that process along? Yes, it's it's a great question. I mean, I think that so one of the things that we're trying to teach is emotion regulation. And part of it is understanding that the spark in the forest fire also happens along a timeline. So there's some kind of trigger, there's some kind of experience, that's the initial trigger. And then there is an appraisal or a judgment of that. And then there's this emotional reaction. If we notice that emotional reaction, we can have awareness about it. And we can choose how to regulate it or, or how to behave or what to do. If we have no awareness, then it can just build and eventually it kind of burns itself out. But then we have to deal with whatever consequences mm-hmm. happened. So I think teaching that timeline and that ability to regulate emotions is very empowering for children because your daughter in, in some ways is right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say some she's ways. completely wrong. Yeah, I mean... 
you know, we, our emotions are triggered by things and that isn't kind of completely within our control, right? We can't just decide not to be angry or, you know, I would love to decide, well, I'm just never going to be angry Mm -hmm. or jealous ever again. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. So people are going to do things that annoy us definitely throughout our whole lives, but learning that there's something I can do about once that emotion is arising, there are things I can do about it. That's very empowering. And that's where these techniques come in that I can take a few breaths. I can go for a walk. I can drink a glass of water, but in order to do any of those things, I first have to be noticing that spark, Mm -hmm. that flame. If I don't notice them, then I'm just carried along as if it's completely against my will. I'm not in control of myself, really. Mm -hmm. I wish I had a better answer. (laughs) That's definitely (laughs) one of the things we're exploring is, you know, we do scenarios where we ask children, you know, we read them stories or the teachers read them stories of kids like them going through a day Mm -hmm. and then asking, you know, asking them first to notice in another child, Mm -hmm. you know, where is that trigger? Mm -hmm. Where is that spark? And they can notice it right away. Mm-hmm. It's always easier to notice in other people yeah. than our, ourselves. <laughs> and then we ask them, you know, what could this other child be doing? And mm-hmm. then, you know, they have learned all these techniques. So they learn first by watching someone else. Yeah. And then they do it themselves. I mean, so, you know, there's so many wonderful children's books and movies and so forth. So even just having a conversation with your child, like, oh, what could that child have done? Mm-hmm. What do you think they're feeling? You know, do you think they could notice something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, what could you they know, do when they feel that way? Yeah. And we also teach kids practices of just observing and watching their mind, which we call meta-awareness or metacognition. Mm-hmm. And this is increasingly being recognized as a very important skill for children to develop. They have metacognition or awareness. It's not something they need to create from scratch. So if you ask kids, you know, hey, what are you thinking about right now? Or what are you, what are you feeling right now? They have that ability to look at their own minds. But we don't teach children to practice that as a skill. We even as adults, we don't practice that as a skill. So mm-hmm. we believe you can practice that as a skill. You can just sit there for moments and just watch your mind. Mm. And the better you are at watching your mind, the better you are at not reacting instantly to what's happening in your mind and in your body. Mm -hmm. So these practices of body awareness and emotional awareness are skills that can be cultivated over time. Mm -hmm. And in new agey circles, that's called meditation, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, right, exactly. So it is, it is, yeah, there are forms of meditation that are just about that. But, you know, we believe that those techniques, uh, they don't have to be practiced in a religious way at all. They're just basic practices. You know, we include attention training practices. These are actually attention training practices, paying attention to your body, paying attention to your mind. And um, they definitely can be used. And there's a lot of meditation research showing that these are skills that can be practiced and they even result in measurable changes um, in our brain, including, you know, measurable changes in cortical thickness, Mm -hmm. you know, that the brain, you know, appears more and more just like a muscle that actually grows depending upon what we practice. Mm. So that's very exciting and encouraging. Sure. Okay. So moving more from looking at the individual to looking at more than one child, another of the articles that you sent me opened with the statement, teachers spend a considerable amount of time mediating disputes between students. And I think every parent of preschoolers who's listening to this show right now is thinking, teachers think they spend a lot of time mediating disputes. They should come to my house. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there are specific techniques or things that you would say to parents who have more than one child who just find themselves 
constantly mediating these disputes between children? What tools can we give these children so they're not at each other's throats constantly? Hmm. You're asking so many great questions. (laughs) (laughs) Difficult questions. Yeah. Otherwise we'd be doing it already. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because all the skills that we're trying to incorporate into our program are building up to that. So one of the things I think that we look for in education as teachers, you know, parents might be looking for this is the kind of the kind of silver bullet. Like if I just do this yeah. one thing, everything's <laughs> going to no. be fine. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, you mentioned meditation and mindfulness. There's been a trend to introduce mindfulness into schools. And mm-hmm. I think mindfulness is a good thing. But, you know, some people just think, well, if, if everybody just did this, then you know, there would be no conflict and everything would be perfect. We believe that you have to develop a whole host of capacities because there's nothing more complex than the interaction between two different people. Mm. There's nothing more complex than a human being. And so you put two of those together and, you know, (laughs) that's why relationships are so hard. But we think, you know, so there's several different skills. So one is just the body awareness, right? When we get into conflict, our bodies are actually responding with sensations. And if we know how to notice those and regulate our body, our ability to communicate with other people enhances dramatically because conflicts are tense situations and our bodies respond, as I mentioned, to social threat, just like physical threat. So your body, if it's a tense conflict, your body is literally gearing up like for a physical altercation. And that can be very unhelpful sometimes. So noticing that, being able to regulate the body, the emotional awareness, of course, because a lot of emotions come up in any conflict situation. So noticing those sparks and being able to deal with them. We also teach something that we call mindful dialogues which we've borrowed from elsewhere, it's a known technique, but it involves listening in a non-judgmental way. So we have children practicing in pairs, sharing things, asking a question to the other student, and then just listening without interrupting, without commenting on it, without responding, but just listening. And just the act of listening can be very, very profound. What almost always happens when we do this is that The person who was just speaking and having the other person listen talks about what an amazing experience it is to just be able to talk (laughs) and have somebody listen, Mm -hmm. you know, with, and knowing that that person isn't going to jump in with a rejoinder or Mm. turn the conversation to themselves or whatnot. So, you know, the art of listening is something that we've kind of lost because listening, you know, the other person speaking is just an opportunity for me to think about what I'm going to say next. (laughs) Podcasters don't do that at all. (laughs) (laughs) So these are all, you know, empathy, compassion. Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about reciprocity. These are all things that if children are building up awareness of all these different things at the same time, then the way they're going to handle conflicts is going to be very different. We also do perspective taking. So, you know, switching the roles. What if you know, you were in that person, why do you think they were saying things the way they were saying them? Why do you think they were doing things the way they were doing? A lot of times we don't even stop to think this. We're just reacting to what the other person is doing. Mm -hmm. And we're not even taking a moment to think about why they might be doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So emotions arise in context. And once we realize how our own emotions arise in context, I talked about the emotion timeline. So emotions arise in connection with an appraisal of a situation. So we appraise the situation in a certain way, positively or negatively, and then our emotion arises. When we see another person acting, we can say, okay, they're doing this behavior. What's their emotional state that's prompting that behavior? 
And what's their appraisal that is prompting that emotional state? And if we follow that line of reasoning, we can think, oh, you know, I can understand why they're doing this thing. The thing they might be doing might be harmful, but I can understand. And even little kids can do this. They can understand, like, you know, why is an animal running away from another animal? Mm -hmm. Because it's afraid. That's the emotional state. Because its appraisal is one of danger, right? Why is this person shouting at that person? Maybe because they're afraid or angry and maybe that's because they're sad about something else and maybe that's because something bad happened to them and it's remarkable how even very small kids can engage in this very sophisticated reasoning that even as adults we very seldom do Mm -hmm. but that's a skill that we can practice and so we really believe that if there are kids or students who are practicing these skills then the way they handle conflicts is going to be very different Mm -hmm. okay So no magic bullet, but (laughs) some helpful tools nonetheless. (laughs) No magic bullet to world peace. (sighs) Not yet. Or climate change. But anyway. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So I want to bring this up to a higher level just as we wrap up here. As I was writing the questions for this episode, I actually received an email from the Yale Alumni Association. And the headline article in that email was about a class called Psychology and the Good Life, which had enrolled 1,200 students, which was a record. And so they actually put it up on Coursera. So if anyone wants to check it out, you can go find it there. And so Professor Laurie Santos's message in that course was that human happiness is fueled more by simple acts of kindness, by meditation, gratitude, exercise, and sleep than by high salaries and grades. And my first thought was how ironic it is that most of these kids' parents paid so much money and spent a lot of time handing their kids about grades so they could go and listen to that lecture. But then I thought parents today are spending a lot of time worrying about getting their kid into the right preschool and then the right school so they can get the right grades and go to the right college and get a, quote, good job and then, quote, be happy. So what advice would you leave us with for parents who see themselves starting to get on that treadmill? What should we tell ourselves? So that's that's a great question. There's a whole discipline that's kind of emerged called positive psychology, that's looking at happiness and life satisfaction and what contributes to it. And they use that term, the treadmill, the hedonic treadmill, Mm, which is that we think that, you know, well, if I had a little bit more money, Mm -hmm. I'd be a little bit happier. If I had a little bit more success or fame or praise or status, you know, these are the things that bring happiness. But in reality, after a certain point, after my basic needs are met, having more money, more status, more fame, more praise, more material possessions doesn't bring more happiness. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of research about that. There's also research um, suggesting that children, not very young children, wouldn't be thinking about this, but even adolescents and teenagers who believe that the keys to happiness are material mm-hmm. tend to need more material gains like money and so forth to reach the same level of happiness as children who don't rate those as very important. Mm. So in other words, we can find happiness from different sources, but material wealth by itself doesn't seem like a very good guarantee for happiness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's a great question for parents to ask. Parents want their children to be happy above all else. Mm -hmm. So they're going to try to create the conditions to maximize their children's chances for success at happiness and leading a happy life. So it's very, very important for parents to reflect on this, that the material conditions of their children's lives, getting a good job, having a good income, are only one part of the picture. And they might not even be the most important part of the picture. So 
And this is something for our whole society to think about because we focus so much on the economic side of things, the material side of things. And in popular culture, we focus so much on praise and fame. Mm -hmm. Social media is all about, you know, how many likes and views and, you know, you get and how many friends you have and followers. Mm -hmm. And these are not uh, solid foundations for happiness at all. So what is a much better predictor of happiness are things like being able to make good decisions in your life, being able to handle relationships. So this has to do with navigating your emotional and social life. And we're really neglecting that in our schools, in our societies. And if we just paid a little more attention to that, I think we'd be doing future generations a much better service. So it's really just a, it's just a shift in orientation and where we're placing our values based on what we want. So in some other countries, you know, things are even more competitive than here, uh, what, here in the what U.S. What countries? If it's possible. What countries? Yeah. Name well, them. <laughs> I would say India, for example. Oh, really? Oh. Admission to the top universities is virtually impossible. Mm. And you have parents actually telling their children in middle school and high school, if you have an opportunity to cheat and get ahead, mm. you should do so. Wow. Because otherwise you're not going to get in. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're not going to get in. You need every advantage wow. to get in because there's so much competition and so much at stake. So in other countries, as you know, in Japan and in India and elsewhere, the university that you get into determines your whole life course. Yeah. You can't get into the top university in the country and not have a great job. You, yeah. In the States, you can. And of course, there's a correlation in the States, but it's not as strong mm -hmm. as in some of these other countries. So Everything is focused on these school entrance exams. Everything's focused on that. And the parents believe so strongly that that is the key to happiness for their children. They're telling their children to sacrifice character mm. and their moral development in order to get ahead. And sadly, I think they're doing their children a great disservice because their children might end up going to great universities and getting great jobs but that's not a guarantee for happiness yeah. at all. What else and if do you sacrifice later in life? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all, you know, can see people who are rich and famous who are not leading happy lives. Yeah. So we need to think about that more and, and talk about that with our children more. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being so willing to delve into this with us and address the thorny questions that there aren't always really great research answers to. I'm so grateful and. I'm excited as well by the conversations that I'm looking forward to having with my daughter about her questions and, and things that she's interested in and how to give her tools and skills that will help her later in life and now as well. So thanks again, Brendan. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate it. So all of the materials that Brendan has referenced today can be found on his website, compassion.emory.edu. And we'll definitely send out a reminder in early next year once <laughs> that selection has been built out. And uh, there are lots more resources there. But that framework that he mentioned is there right now. And all the references for the show, along with that link to his website, can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash compassion. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift, seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.